Well, there was a young man, and he was getting ready to graduate from college, and he was so excited. And he thought, what would be a wonderful graduation gift to get from his dad? His dad was a very well-off individual. He thought a sports car would be a wonderful... Oh, the kid is so funny, isn't he? A sports car would be a wonderful idea. And so the little narcissistic, self-absorbed kid kept putting little hints around saying, Hey, Dad, I'm graduating soon. This is a sports car. Really would like to drive around that, I tell you what, right now. Well, the dad didn't seem to bite on any of that for some reason. And so as a result, the kid wasn't certain whether he'd get the sports car or not. Well, the graduation day came, and the young man graduated, and afterwards there was a little party. And then after the party was over, the dad invited the son to come and do a study. And he said, sit down, son, I want to give you a gift. And then he pulled out of his drawer a box that was wrapped up, handed the box over to the son. He said, son... This is what I want you to study. This is what I want you to meditate upon. This is what I want you to live by. The kid ripped it open as fast as he could, and it was a Bible. He was upset. It wasn't a sports car. And without even opening it up, he threw it back down on his dad's desk, and he said, I cannot believe that you're doing this to me. All the money that you have, and you buy me a lousy Bible. And he stormed out of the study and he stormed out of his dad's life. In fact, it was just a few days after that that he moved out of his dad's residence, never to come back again. He got married without his dad there. He had kids without his dad there. Dad tried to reconcile with him, called him several times. Kid wouldn't take the dad's phone call, didn't want to listen to anything the dad had to say. He was so upset that his dad didn't get him that sports car. Well, the young man grew up, got more mature, began to realize what a self-absorbed narcissist he really was. And he began to repent, started going to church, realized that he needed to repent of his sin, needed to make things right with his dad. And he was getting ready to go and do that. He had a trip planned about a week out that his dad didn't know about. Going to surprise his dad. But then the phone call came. His dad had died of a massive heart attack. Left his entire estate to the young man. So the young man comes back to the house, the house that he hadn't been a part of for all those years. The house now seemed very cold, very silent, very distant. He walked into that study and sat down at his dad's desk. And he opened up a drawer. And there in the drawer was the Bible that the dad had given him on that graduation day. The young man opened up the box and began to thumb through the pages of the Bible, and he saw that his dad had underlined one particular verse of Scripture. This is what it said. And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, give to those who ask him? He continued to thumb through the pages when a piece of paper fell down to the ground. He picked it up. It was the title to a sports car, the same sports car he had hinted to his dad that he wanted to have a couple of days before his graduation. Friends, sometimes the blessings of God come in unexpected ways, don't they? You have in your possession, or you should if you don't have one, the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? Do you study the Word of God? Do you memorize the Word of God? Do you meditate upon the Word of God? 
That's the hope of this entire series called Text, is that you would fall so in love with God's Word, and you would understand how amazing this book is, that you would make it a point of your life to spend some time in it every single day, that this would become the true north of your life, that when you're looking for guidance, when you're looking for wisdom, you don't look to Cousin Eddie, you don't look to somebody else, but you look to the Word of God, and then you become the kind of believer that says this, if God's Word says it, then that's what I want to do. Now, for many of us, the Bible is confusing, isn't it? It's a, it's a large book. You've never had this book before. You're not certain how it all fits together. So today, we're going to kind of give an overview of what the Bible is all about. Let me start off by telling you that the word Bible actually means books, and that's what the Bible is. It is a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors. It was written over the course of 1,500 years, uh, 40 different authors. Many of these people didn't live at the same time, and yet there is one theme that goes throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that theme is this, is that God created you, and God loves you, and God wants to have a relationship with you, and God became flesh and dwelt among us, dies on a cross and rises again from the dead and is right now at the right hand of the Father and one day he's going to crack open the sky and come to take us to be with him. Written over 1,500 years on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Written in 13 different countries. Let me explain to you that the Bible is divided into two different sections. There is the Old Testament, which has 39 books, and the New Testament that has 27 books. Now, I'm going to give you a real easy way to memorize how many books the Old and the New Testament have because you don't want to be embarrassed when someone says, hey, how many books does the Old Testament? Let me Google that. I'll find that out right now. No, I'll give you an easy way. Play along with me at home and in the room. You ready? How many letters in the word old? Okay, this isn't hard. This is, this is simple math, all right? So we count it together. One, two, three, three, okay? How many letters are in the word Testament. More than three, right? That's what you're saying. More than three. Too tired right now. I'm sunbeat. It's hot outside. Tell you what. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Thirty-nine. That's the easy way to remember it. How, how many letters in the word new? Man, you're a lively bunch. I tell you what. How many letters in the word testament? Three times nine is? Some of you are still thinking. I don't know. 21, 24, forget these helpful hints, they didn't help you at all, okay? The word testament, it means agreement or covenant or promises. Now, the Old Testament is about a covenant that God made with a man by the name of Abram. He changes his name later on to Abraham, and he promises Abraham he's going to be the father of a great nation. Here's the problem in the Old Testament is the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, they rebel against God over and over and over again, but God won't give up on them, and the good news is, is that God won't give up on you as well. So here's the question. How is the Old Testament divided? Well, it is divided in four different parts. Sometimes you can get lost in the Bible. I'm going to try to give you a map to kind of guide you through it. The Old Testament is divided in four different parts. The first part is called the Book of Moses and the Law. In your table of contents, you could kind of highlight that, and you could write the Book of Moses and the Books of Law. And those are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis is a book that tells us that God created us, that God loves us, that God wants to have a relationship with us. Again, he has a covenant with Abram. We follow one of the most dysfunctional families in 
all the world throughout the book of Genesis. If you're feeling bad about yourself, read Genesis. You'll feel pretty good about yourself pretty fast. They're selling their wives. They're doing all kinds of wiggity-wack stuff. It's messed up people. Exodus is about how the children of Israel have grown so large that no longer does the Pharaoh want them around. He thinks there's more Israelites than there are Egyptians, and so he puts them into captivity for 400 years. And the book of Exodus is God sending a man named Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of captivity and out of slavery. And then you have Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which all talk about how God leads them and guides them to the very cusp of the promised land, giving them laws to obey. The second part of the Old Testament is called the history books. This is the history of the Israelite people. It goes from Joshua all the way to Esther. So Joshua is the one who takes after Moses. He leads them into the promised land. Joshua dies. Then there's a period called the Judges. There's a book in the Bible called Judges. These are military leaders that God raises up to go against the enemies of the day. All the way through Esther is the history of how God intervenes in the life of the Israelite people. The third section of the Old Testament is the wisdom books. Books of Job all the way to the Song of Songs. Job is a book about suffering. Why is there suffering in our world today? Psalms is a beautiful book, mostly written by David, of songs that he wrote to the Lord. If you want to hear about the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows of a relationship with God, you need to read the book of Psalms. Proverbs are pithy little sayings that Solomon, the son of David, had. Uh, These are probabilities. They're not promises. More than likely, things will work this way in the book of Proverbs. Then you have Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon. It was his quest for meaning and purpose in life. And then you have the Song of Songs. Or maybe in your Bible, it is the Song of Solomon. And this is a hot, spicy little book about honeymoon love on a hot summer night. Okay? Some of you are like, where's that one at? I want to read that one right now. Going to learn more about God's word right now. That hot book, that's what I want. Hot. The Old Testament is also divided. The fourth part is called the prophets. This goes from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. God uses prophets to do two things. Warn the people to turn from their sin, repent of their sin. The second reason God used prophets was to tell them that the Messiah is coming. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming and you need to be ready and you need to be aware. That's how the Old Testament is divided. The New Testament is divided into five different parts. Again, highlight these things. You can take pictures of these slides. I'll smile when you take them. It might help you, okay? First part is called the Gospels. That's the New Testament. Gospels means good news. And the good news is that Jesus has come. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write about the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the first section of the New Testament. Second section is called the history of the early church. This is the book of Acts, okay? So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. This is the sequel. You know how sometimes sequels aren't as good as the original? This sequel is just as good as the original. All tells you about the history of the early church, how it spread the message of Jesus to the outer ends of the world. The third section is called the letters or the epistles of Paul. This is from Romans all the way to Philemon. Paul would go from town to town proclaiming that Jesus had risen again from the dead. It wasn't very popular. He would get thrown into prison. 
While he was in prison under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would write letters back to churches or back to individual people who were starting churches. And we have the letters of Paul as a result. The fourth section is the other letters written from Hebrews all the way to Jude. God used other godly men to write the word of God. And then the last one is the Apocalypse. This is the book of Revelation. This is the study of the end times and of the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the book probably more people are interested than any other book, and it is about as wiggity-whack as it gets. You need as much help to get through Revelation as you possibly can. We're going to do a study in a few months on the book of Revelation, because if he ain't coming back soon, he ain't never coming back. You understand what I'm saying? All right, we're moving on right now, okay? Now, the Old Testament was completed around 400 B.C. Now, the question is, is how did we get these 66 books? I mean, how do we know the 66 books that we've got here aren't, are the right 66 books? I and mean, how do we know there's not 67 or 68 or 69? Well, the Bible says that the books of Moses were put into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the most holy place on the face of the earth. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was the very throne of God. So the Holy of Holies is where they put the books of Moses. And most scholars believe that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and most of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, the last chapter, Moses dies. So we're pretty certain he didn't write that because it's hard to, you know, die and keep writing. You understand what I'm saying? So those books were placed in there. We know also from Scripture that Joshua was placed. The book of Joshua was placed in the Holy of Holies. We know that Samuel placed his books, 1 Samuel, and also Judges in the place of the Holy of Holies. And we know that Samuel also started a school of prophets. And one of their responsibilities was to make sure that inspired scripture would be preserved in the temple. And that's exactly what they did. Well, when 400 B.C. came rolling around, guess what? There wasn't much debate about what books made up the Old Testament. In fact, there was just a limited debate about these five books right here. There was some debate about the Song of Solomon. Because, as I said, it's about Solomon and his bride's honeymoon. And it's hot and it's... So they weren't sure if that book should be put in there or not. And then Ecclesiastes is such a cynical book. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And people are like, I don't know if I want to put this in the Bible or not, right? Also, there was a debate about the book of Esther. Esther is one of the only books in the Bible that doesn't mention God in the entire book. And yet you can see God intervening throughout the life and times of Esther. And there was limited debate about Proverbs and and Ezekiel. But over the limited debate, they all said, no, these are the 39 books that are authoritative. And then there's 400 years of silence. There are no prophetic visions. There are no prophets during this time. There's no angel visitations. During this 400 years of silence, there's not a word from God. And then time is split in two, and you know why time was split in two, because Jesus came, the Messiah came. All the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. And then around A.D. 33, give or take a year or two, we have Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. And then we have the New Testament that begins to be written around 51 A.D. The first book was 1 Thessalonians, and the last one in 95 A.D. was the book of Revelation. Now, here's the question. Jesus dies in 33 A.D. They don't write a book till 51 A.D. What were they doing all that time? That's 18 years. Nobody wrote anything about Jesus. 
Why was that? Well, Jesus said right before he ascended to the right hand of the Father that he was going to come back again, right? And they all thought that he was going to come back quickly. But then persecution came into the early church, and people started dying left and right. And then all of a sudden they began to realize, Jesus is coming back, but it might not be during my lifetime. We probably need to write these things down and pass these on to future generations. And so that, my friend, is exactly what they did. Are you ready for this? The Bible wasn't even put together. The New Testament portion wasn't put together till 397 A.D. at the Council of Carthage. The question is, is what took them so long? Well, Christianity was illegal till 313 A.D. It was illegal to have these Bibles. It was illegal to have a scroll. And the scrolls were big. And, and for the most part, all 27 books were never put in the same place. They were hidden out in caves. They were hidden in homes. It wasn't until 397 that they brought the scrolls all together and they said, okay, which of the, 20, which of the books make up the New Testament? And so they began to debate about which books made it and which books didn't make it. And they used three criteria to make sure that what they picked was the right things to pick. The first one was this. The books had to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. So if they weren't written by someone who was closely associated with Jesus, wasn't a disciple or an apostle, that book automatically didn't get into the final mix. Now, we know that Matthew and we know that John were disciples of Jesus. The gospel of Mark was given to Mark through Peter. So we really should call it the Gospel of Peter, but I'm not going to do that because that would be heresy. So we'll just keep calling it the Gospel of Mark as told to by Peter. And then Luke was a close associate of Paul. Secondly, it had to be recognized by the early church as being authoritative. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit had to speak through it. That when you sat down and you read this book, that it changed your life, that it changed people's lives, it changed the direction of their life. There was power in the, in the words on that particular page. And I think all of us would attest that what we've got together in the Bible, there is power, unbelievable power, life-changing power in the Word of God. And the third thing is this. It had to be doctrinally consistent. It couldn't contradict what had already been accepted which means it couldn't come up with some wiggity-whack idea that didn't make any sense. Now, you've probably heard about other Gospels, right? Like the Gospel of Mary, or the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Judas, or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. The Da Vinci Code made these particular Gospels very, very popular. So the question is, why aren't these in our Bible? Well, are you ready for this? They weren't written in the first century. And they weren't written by these people. Mary, Thomas, Judas, and Mary Magdalene had been dead for over a hundred years when these books were written. These were called the Gnostic Gospels, and they were thrown out as heresy way back in the day. They did not have the authoritative of what the Scriptures, the New Testament, had put together. Let, let me explain. Gospel of Mary says there's no such thing as sin. So we knew immediately that that book didn't belong. He also, in the Gospel of Mary, whoever wrote it, said that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. And they were sketchy on whether Jesus would come back again or not. The Gospel of Thomas, let me read a passage from the Gospel of Thomas. You ready for this? Let Mary go forth from among us, for women are not worthy of life. Sounds like scripture to me. I don't know about you. Women are not worthy of life, Jesus said. Behold, I shall lead her that I may make her male. 
Okay, in order that she also may become a living spirit like you males, for every woman who makes herself male shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Moving on. These, these books were never seriously considered because you would never seriously consider them as well. I mean, it was one wiggity-whack thing after another wiggity-whack thing after an, another wiggity-whack thing. Now, here's the question. How is it that we got the Bible today? How, how did we, these 66 books, get preserved so that we have these books in our possession today? Well, you got to go all the way back to 303. There's an emperor named Diocletian who set out to destroy Christianity. He just wanted to obliterate it from the face of the earth. So he went from place to place, town to town with his Roman soldiers. He knocked on every door, every building, and he searched for scriptures. And if anybody was found having any of the scrolls, any of the holy scriptures, that person was immediately killed, and those scriptures were burned. He wanted to get rid of Christianity once and for all, but godly men and godly women protected the word of God. And they went out into the desert regions and they hid the word of God in caves so that the word of God would endure forever. It wasn't until 395 when Constantine became the first Christian emperor to Rome. He made certain that the Bible would be preserved. And he had 50 copies of the Bible made at the Roman government's uh, expense. Now by AD 500, things are looking up for the word of God. The Bible has now been translated into 13 different languages. Things are going well. But by A.D. 600, the Catholic Church determined that the only right translation of the Bible is the translation in the, in the Latin. Now, I'm not dogging the Catholic Church by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just sharing with you history. If you were found during this time with a Bible that was written in any other language than the language of Latin, which nobody spoke, then you were killed immediately. And your Bible was confiscated, and your Bible was taken away, and your Bible was burned. Now, here's the question we got to ask ourselves. Why did the Catholic Church do this? Well, this is a period in history called the Dark Ages. The Catholic Church had become very corrupt. And as a result of them being so corrupt, they were teaching things that simply weren't in the Word of God. They were teaching things like indulgences. You ever heard of this one? Here's how indulgences would work in the Catholic Church. You have a loved one that passes away. And so you go to get a proper burial. And the priest looks at you and says, I'm really sorry that your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad has passed away. And I have conferred with God. And I have figured out that they are not in heaven because they weren't quite good enough. And they're not in hell because they weren't quite bad enough. They are in purgatory. You ever heard of purgatory? You won't find it in the Bible. There's no such place. But the Catholic Church had made up this place called purgatory, an intermediary place where your loved one hangs out until someone pays and prays for them to go to heaven. So the priest would say, listen, I'm really sorry about your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad. They're, they're uh, kind of in this limbo state. But uh, I'll pray for them. And I'll really pray for them if you'll uh, give X amount of dollars. Well, who wants to see their aunt or uncle or mom or dad in a state of limbo? So people were selling their homes, selling their businesses, selling everything they could to get their loved one to be in heaven. They, this is how the Catholic Church got rich. Well, why did the Catholic Church want the Bible to be only in Latin? Well, no one read Latin. No one understood Latin. So the priest could get up there and teach you whatever he wanted to teach you. 
And they just took it as the absolute truth. That the priest is saying, hey, man, they're my loved ones in purgatory. Then I need to pay to get them out. This went on for almost 700 years. Until a guy by the name of John Wycliffe decided the corruption needed to stop. He was, he was quite upset. He said, you know, the, my personal mission is to get the scriptures back into the hands of everyday people. So he did something very radical during this time period. He translated the Bible from the Latin to English. He wanted it in the language of the common person. And for that, oh, the Pope wasn't happy at all. And he sought him, and he found him, and he killed him. And 43 years later, the Pope was still mad about it. Because it had shown the darkness of the church. And so he had the bones of John Wycliffe buried, brought back, to, brought back to the surface again. And he burned the bones until they were nothing more than dust. And threw the dust in the river Swift. The dark ages continued. And then in 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther went to the Wittenberg Church. The church was a bulletin board where people would post the latest information. And he penned on October 31st, 1517, the 95 Thesis. 95 things that he said where the Catholic Church was doing that was wrong, that wasn't in the Scripture. You see, Martin Luther was a priest. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church wasn't interested in reform because they were simply making too much money. And then Martin Luther did something that was kind of interesting. He began to translate the Bible from Latin into German. And then he used a little invention called the Gutenberg Press, and he started making copies of the Bible as a result. And again, it seemed like everything was going to get a little bit better, but that's when the Catholics decided to add books to the Bible. If you're a former Catholic or you've been a Catholic or you're currently a Catholic, you know that your Bible has more books than the Protestant Bible. You have a, a section called the Apocrypha. These books were added in, even though the Catholic Church had already said that these books were not authoritative. They added those books in because they talk about things like purgatory. And that was their justification for their false teaching, was adding books to their Bible. 1526, a man named William Tyndale printed the very first English Bible. And they demanded that he stop. And so he went in hiding. And everywhere he went, he printed more and more Bibles. And he became the first smuggler of Bibles. And he smuggled them everywhere. And for 11 years, he was on the run. They couldn't catch him. But then one day they did. And for his crimes of getting the word of God in the language of the everyday person, they tied him to a stake, and they burned him alive. And as he was being burnt alive, he prayed. He prayed for the king. The king was the one who had him killed. The king was the one that said that the Bible shouldn't be in the language of the everyday person. He prayed that the king of England, that he'd repent, that he would open up his eyes, and he would see what he was doing. And three years later, sure enough, the king of England realized that the scriptures belonged to the people. And the Bible was finally set free. Jesus said this, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. 
Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Think about all the lives that were sacrificed so that you could have the Bible in your possession today. And all these generations before you never even dreamed that they would have all 66 books in their possession. They only hoped that one day they would get to see the reality that you see every day. So I got, I got to ask you a question. What in the world are you doing with the Bible? Do you love it? Do you memorize it? Do you meditate upon it? Do you read it? Do you absorb it? Do you memorize verse after verse after verse after verse? Is it the true north? Is it the guide of your life? I, I don't know if you know this or not, but there are 53 countries right now, 53 countries right now where the Bible's still illegal. Just like the people were persecuted and, and burned at the stake back in the day, it's still happening to this day. There are evil governments that go from house to house and town to town looking for anyone who proclaims to be a Christian, looking for anyone who has even a fragment of a Bible, and they're imprisoned, they're put in work camps, they're murdered because they love the Word of God. 53 countries, it's illegal. The last time I checked, it's not illegal in the United States of America. And it's not illegal in Belize. So what are you going to do with that book? Will you study that book? Will you apply that book? Will you live that book out each and every day of your life? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we can allow that book to sit on our nightstands and collect dust. We can allow that book to be a, a distant memory. We can allow ourselves to believe that our wisdom is greater than your wisdom. And that the direction that we've pointed ourselves to in our own life is the right way to go. Not even knowing what your word has to say. God, I pray that every person watching me and every person in this room would be people of this book. That we would let it transform us. That you would speak through it. Lord, that we would fall deeply in love with you and deeply in love with your word that it would change our lives where else can we go for hope where else can we go for direction may our lives be firmly planted upon you and upon your word I ask this in Jesus name Amen